church. I have a couple of challenges today with the text. The first is that this scripture, the story that we're reading today is pretty well-known story. If you've been in church before, if you're familiar with your Bible, you've probably heard a sermon on this story before. It's the five loaves and two fishes. And, you know, maybe if you've heard a sermon before, you have a sense of, well, this is what she's going to say, or this is what she should say, or this is like what I've heard before. Like when we've heard something, our mind tends to go in a direction of we have an expectation of what we're going to hear. The second challenge is I am really familiar with this passage as well because I taught it here about 18 months ago. And so if you've been part of this church for a while, you may remember in the height of COVID, July 2020, I looked into a camera and preached a sermon alone in a room, and it was called Miracles. And it was the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish. So I also have a mindset of like, I know what God wants to say. Familiarity can be a little bit of a dangerous thing. When we become over-familiar with scripture, we tend to lock down into thinking, well, I know what this is going to be about. So I'm going to invite you to do this morning what I've tried to do this week, and that is kind of to suspend my familiarity and my sense of judgment about what God said before or what this sermon, this scripture, what kind of sermon it should be, what it's really about, and just simply say, God, I'm open. I'm open to a new thing that together we can step into something new and fresh and that God can speak to us. Does that sound good? Okay. Sounds good to two of you. That's awesome. Um, Mark 6, starting in verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much money and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that regardless as to whether this is our first time walking in the doors of this church today or whether we've been coming for years, whether we know the story or whether we've never heard it before, Jesus, you have something for us today. You have something new. 
And I pray that you would empower me to preach this sermon and you'd open all of our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us. Lord, I pray that we would enter into a new space with new understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in seventh grade, I took part in a theater production in my school. I wish I could tell you that I had the main starring role, but in fact, I was a stagehand. So I uh, used to kind of scurry around, you know, bringing out the props and changing and moving all the things around. And there's something I learned when I was doing that in that in the theater, you have what we call the foreground and then you have the background. And the foreground is what is right immediately in front of the audience. It's kind of that very front of the stage, it's where the action is happening, where people are conversing, and there's all these specific items that are the tangible kind of central theme of what's going on. And then in the background, you have kind of the bigger picture, it gives you context and color, and, and it's kind of part of the bigger story, and helps you see there's something more happening here, it kind of illuminates what's happening at the very foreground of the stage. Well, today, church, I'm gonna use that lens to approach our scripture today. We're gonna to look at the foreground of what is happening immediately in front of us. What's the obvious, superficial, it's right there and it's really clear. And then we're gonna step back and we're also gonna look at the background. And we're gonna say, what is going on behind the immediate? What is going on behind the thing that has our attention and our focus? What is the bigger story that is, all of this is set in? So let's just set the scene for a moment here. This story is told in all four Gospels. That means every single Gospel writer said, you know what, this is an important story, you need to hear this. Another key thing to know is, though it says at the end of the passage there was 5,000 men, we know at that time they didn't count the women and children, but they were there, and so there's probably more like 15,000 people in this crowd. We know that right before this, the disciples have been out on their first mission trip. They've gone out because Jesus sent them. They've been healing the sick and casting out demons, preaching the good news, and they've come back and they've got stories to tell. I mean, they want some time with Jesus, with their rabbi, with their mentor. They want to get with him and say, this is what happened and this was awesome and why was this going on? They want to have that kind of connection and they're hungry. They're hungry and they're tired. Now, have you ever noticed that when we are hungry and tired, we begin to behave in strange ways, don't we? I was uh, at the store with my son on Friday. Um, he's 12. And friends, I don't know what it is with the Safeway self-checkouts anybody else like every time I go and I'm like scanning my thing and I put it in the bag and then it beeps at me and it's like it's not in the bag and I'm like it's in the bag like I don't know what else to do and I'm like shaking things and the lights are going off and somebody needs to come help me and I'm annoyed it's like Friday afternoon the store is busy and I just want to get out of there I'm like tapping my foot I'm like looking around for someone to help me we get back in the car and I'm kind of short with my son and as I turned the ignition on the car, I said to my son, I think I might be hungry. And he's like, you think so? <laughs> because when I get hungry and tired and there's people everywhere and things aren't working the way they're supposed to work, I'm like annoyed. We tend to do things when we're tired that we wouldn't normally do. In the recovery community and amongst mental health professionals, there is 
the language of HALT, you might have heard of. It stands for hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And we often talk about it because when we're in one of those states, we are vulnerable to behave in ways that we wouldn't prefer to behave. We are vulnerable to compromise, to maybe go back to do things that we're trying to walk away from. It's not our best self. It wasn't the best Ruthie showing up in Safeway on Friday afternoon because I was hungry. It's tired. I also have a rule in my house, just for me, that I don't really believe much of what I think after 7 o'clock at night. I don't know if you can relate, it took me, I don't know, about 39 years to figure out this about myself, but after about 7 o'clock at night, particularly at the end of a long week, my brain tends to go to places that I wouldn't prefer it to go to. I start to spiral, I start to worry, I start to get stressed out about stuff, and so now I've actually told my husband, please remind me. So periodically I'll get going about this massive thing that we're trying to work through, and he'll be like, you know what, maybe we should talk about this tomorrow. Right, because when I'm tired, my brain goes to places, and that is exactly what happens in this story, because we have this crowd of people, and they're in immense need, they're hungry, right? They haven't eaten all day, and the disciples' first response is, send them away. Send them away. They were not in their best self right then. They had just come back from this mission trip where they were supposed to be like ushering in the kingdom of God and doing all these things. And faced with this need, they're like, oh my gosh, get away from me. Because when we're depleted, and then somebody else comes to us and says, I am depleted, give me something, we've got nothing to give. And so we tend to behave in ways that we wouldn't prefer. So they try and send them away. But Jesus says to him, well, how about you feed them? And they say, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? I mean, they immediately are just like, come on, Jesus. Are you serious? Like, we are exhausted and we are tired. But I guess if you want us to do something, we need to come up with a plan. We need to, okay, I work it out in my head. I need this much money and go get that bread. And they just switch into that mode. They go straight into, okay, what can we do? Are you serious? You want us to, okay, we're going to think this through. We're going to make a plan. And it would be, you know, easy for us to judge them in this moment if we weren't so guilty of doing the exact same things. In fact, two chapters later in Mark 8, you're going to see an almost identical story played out. It's the feeding of the 4,000. Same issue. Crowd is hungry. Jesus says, what have you got? They're like, oh, we don't have enough bread. What are we going to do? And for us as a reader, we look at it and we go, come on, you just saw a miracle. Like, I can't believe you guys aren't just going, Jesus, you're going to feed everyone. But church, how often has God moved in our life in a certain way? And then days, weeks, months later, we face the same thing and we're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And we have complete amnesia about how God has showed up before. It's easy to slip into ways of thinking that maybe are not the best, not what we would prefer, but it's so easy to go there. It's so easy to lean into our own self-reliance and begin to start thinking like, what can I do? What can I do when faced with this insurmountable, overwhelming, huge problem? That's where we go to straight away, isn't it? When a bill comes through the door and we're like financially strapped, okay, what do I need to do to figure this out? 
or a relationship is spiraling and falling apart, well, I gotta, I gotta do something. How can I grab onto this and like fix this? What do I need to do? Or the job that we want, it just feels like we need a strategy and I show up here and I talk to that person and I do this thing. We just begin to make plans. We begin to make plans for our life. What can I do with my resources, my time, my energy? And I think sometimes we do that because we don't trust God. In fact, I think we trust ourselves more than we trust God. Like, what if God doesn't show up? I mean, what if he can't provide for this need? What if he doesn't know that I have it? I should just, I need a plan. I need to figure this out. I need to depend on myself. We come to church and we say, oh, Lord, I surrender to you. It's all in your hands, but I've got a plan. Just in case it's not in his hands. It's easy to slip into what can I do. I have struggled with this immensely in my own life. I've struggled with this this week. I mean, I'm literally preaching the sermon today that I need to hear. I am preaching to my own soul this morning because this week I have been in a little bit of the what can I do mode with some things in my life. Areas that I wanna change, what can I do? Things that I need to see happen, what do I need to do? And we shift to what can I do? When I was 16 years old and God called me into ministry, I was living in England and I went to this youth camp. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. I went to this Christian youth camp where they bring in speakers and there's all this like cool worship and they get all these middle schoolers and high schoolers in a room and there was hundreds of us kids in there and they had this youth, youth pastor come talk. He's a 21-year-old guy from LA. That's very exciting, by the way, to like little British kids who grew up in a village. You're from Los Angeles? What is it like there? You know, so it's like, whoa. And he was also really good looking. So he had my attention. So anyway, um, <laughs> so he is preaching. And you know, he had, I don't think he had been a believer that long. Um, he certainly hadn't been preaching that long. But God moved through him. And I ended up here in San Francisco because of him. That's a whole other story. But one night, he was telling his testimony. And, uh, I mean, don't ever underestimate the power of testimony, friends. And he just started to tell a story, and, and he was a youth pastor working at the Dream Center in L.A. And, uh, and he was like, you know, before that, I, um, I actually got a, a, an incredible scholarship to go to medical school. And uh, that was the plan for his life. And then God interrupted that plan and, and said, hey, I want you to go in a different direction. I actually want you to go into ministry. I want you to go into pastoring. He still pastors to this day. And, and he started telling his friends and family, like, hey, this was the plan. But I feel like God's, God's telling me to go in this direction. And, uh, and his friends and family were like, how are you going to give up a scholarship like this? I mean, people will give a limb for like this kind of scholarship. Like, how are you going to walk away from that? And what about if like this whole like pastoring thing doesn't really work out? You know what you should do? You should go to school. You should get your degree and do all your training and then, you know, have that as a plan B so that if you go after this pastoring thing and it doesn't work out, you've got something to fall back on. I mean, that sounds logical and rational. And I will never forget what he said. I will remember it to the day I die. He said, I looked at them and I said, if God fails me, I will need more than a plan B to save me. 
And I felt the Holy Spirit pin me to the chair as a 16-year-old girl. And I felt Jesus say to me, Ruthie, I don't want you to have a plan B. I want to be your plan A and your only plan. I want to be your everything. I want you to cut yourself free from all the things that you can work out in your head, that you could do with your life, the places that you could go, the things that you could do. I want you to cut yourself free from that and go all in on plan A. And church, I want to say to you this morning that some of us are so busy building our plans and some of us are so busy, even right now in life, living plan B. You're living the thing that's your backup. It's the thing that you're like, this will provide me security, this person, this job, this amount of money, this thing is there in case God doesn't come through, in case God fails. But church, if God fails, you're gonna need more than that relationship and that job and that bank account to save you. But the good news is God's not gonna fail. God's not gonna fail. It might be challenging, there might even be suffering along the way, but you want plan A, because I don't know about you, but I'm tired of plan B. I mean, I'm tired of my own efforts. I'm tired of living out this narrative of what can I do in my strength, in my energy. That's exhausting. It's frustrating. It's not what God has for us. See, God is not going to fail. And in that moment with the disciples, I don't think Jesus was looking for the disciples to like muster up a miracle. I think he simply wanted them to believe that they were in the presence of the miracle maker. You see, we're so busy trying to muster up our things. What does God want from me? What do I need to figure out? What's the plan? All of these things that sometimes God's just inviting us to say, hey, you're in the presence of the one that can do it all. Jesus in Mark 1, the opening of this whole sermon series, he, he comes and he announces a new kingdom. And he doesn't say, behold, the kingdom of logic and rational thinking is here. And he doesn't say, behold, the kingdom of playing it safe is here. He says, behold, the kingdom of God is here. And anytime Jesus comes into our life with something new, we need to pause and say, what is different about this new thing? I mean, what is it supposed to replace or upgrade in our lives? See, we've been talking a lot about the kingdom of God ushering in signs and wonders and miracles, yes. But the kingdom of God also ushers in a different way of thinking. I think Jesus was creating an opportunity here for the disciples, and he's creating one for us this morning. And it's an opportunity to shift our mindset away from what can I do, and instead say, what can he do? It feels like a small shift. What can I do? What can he do? But if you have tried that shift, like me, you will know that there are some things that we have to work through. I believe that Jesus is inviting us this morning to move away from the things that we can build and the things that we cling on to and instead say, what can he do? I mean, what can he do with my life? Instead of what can I do with my life? It's frustrating sometimes, Jesus, because he never really gives us a full plan. Sometimes he just says, hey, I want you to quit that job. 
You're like, okay, I don't know if you know, I live in San Francisco and I have rent to pay. Um, but sure, like what's next? And then Jesus says, no, I just want you to quit the job. You can't be serious. That's not logical or rational. And it's just like the Holy Spirit is like, it's not the kingdom of rational and logical. It's the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom of faith. Sometimes God says, I want you to let go of that relationship, that dating relationship, that friendship, that group of people, because it's sucking the life out of you. But what if I let it go and I don't have one again? What, what if there's nothing, what if I'm lonely? And the invitation is to let go and trust God. But it's so scary because what if God fails? God's not going to fail, church. Jesus is inviting us to shift our mindset away from what can I do to what can he do. But that's just the, the foreground of this story. I mean, that's what is immediately happening. We've got this interaction with Jesus and the disciples. But there's something even more going on behind this story. So let's just jump back to Mark 6. Jesus says, you know, what do you have? What you got in your hands? And they're like, five loaves, two fish. More than enough for Jesus, right? More than enough. These little things that we have in our life that we minimize and we say, I can't do anything with them. God, I don't know where this is going to take me. What am I going to do with this? God says, that is more than enough. Because remember, I'm not asking you to do the miracle. Just believe you're in the presence of the miracle maker. See, some of us think that, well, I've got to live my life perfectly, be a good Christian, and then there's this little gap at the end that's just out of my hands. There's just no, no matter how good I am or how much I try this, that's the supernatural piece. That's where God clicks in. Church, I want to challenge that thought today. That is not the Christian life. God is not there to show up for that tiny gap that it's just impossible for you to fill. God is there for your everything. So it doesn't matter how smart and talented and amazing you are, and it doesn't matter how much you can get done without his help, he doesn't want you to live that way. He wants you to turn to him first. See, often we turn to Jesus in desperation, and those times are okay. I mean, let me show you, tell you, Jesus shows up in desperation, absolutely. But he wants to be there when there's no desperation. He wants to be the first place that you turn to. What's the biggest story happening here? Well, Mark gives us a few clues. First of all, he says that he takes them to a remote place or a solitary place. Now, if you heard me preach at the beginning of this Mark series, I preached a sermon about Jesus going to a solitary place. And you may remember that I said that that word for solitary place is very similar to the word for wilderness. Okay? So Mark is drawing our attention to something here. If you read the story in the book of John, John actually literally says, it's Passover festival time. Like, why? Why are, you, why are you telling us this, John? Well, if you were to ask any good Jewish kid, as they were reading through this book generations ago, hey, wilderness, Passover, what, did it, what does this make you think about? Some kid would have raised a hand and said, I know. I know because I know our story, that there was a time when we as Jewish people, we were enslaved in Egypt, and we said to ourselves, what can we do? 
nothing. But God said, oh, but what can I do? And he led us out of slavery. Oh, and there's this other time when we were in the wilderness and we couldn't feed ourselves and we couldn't provide for ourselves and we didn't know what to do. And we said, what can we do? And we said, nothing. And God said, look what I can do. I'm going to feed you manna from heaven. See, these things are in there purposely for Mark. He's trying to draw our attention away from just what's happening in the foreground to look back at the bigger story and say, this story is tethered in something bigger. There is something bigger happening here. God wants us to know that we can depend on him in much the same way that Israel depended on him when they were coming out of Egypt and wandering around in the wilderness. God wants to be our provision. In John 6, right after John tells us this story, Jesus actually says something really interesting. John 6, verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, what sign will we give that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus said, I'm the bread. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Let me paraphrase this for you. Jesus is basically saying, stop looking at the foreground of your life. Stop looking at feeding your stomachs and immediate needs and all the things you can do in your own strength, and look up and see that you have someone in your midst who is the bread of life, who has everything that you could possibly need. He's right here, and the Father sent me, and I want to be your everything, and not just your something, and I don't want to be this tiny little food that you eat and say, oh, that was so good. Do another miracle. Do another thing, but I want to be everything in your life because I'm the bread of life, and I can sustain you. Church, don't settle for the foreground of what's in your life. I mean, some of us, are, we're so caught up in, in, in work and relationships and money and struggles and, and addictions and all the things that draw our attention right down here that we're missing that all the way back here, there's this bigger story of God in our lives. And maybe you've lived that way your whole life. And maybe it's just been about what's been in front of you, what you can do. Maybe that's how you were raised. It's like it's all on you. You have to hustle and you have to make it happen. But church, I'm here to tell you there's a bigger story going on. And there's someone that wants to be your everything and not just a little piece. And he can sustain you. And he's inviting us to trust him. There's something else going on in the background here because Mark isn't done. In verse 34, he says that Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they were sheep without a shepherd. In verse 39, he specifically mentions that they sit down in green grass. 
If you ask that little Jewish child again, reading this story generations ago, what, what do you think about when you think about a shepherd and sheep and green grass? They would have raised their hand and they would have said, Psalm 23. This is Psalm 23 being played out. Jesus is the good shepherd and he shows up and he's like, you all are sheep and you're lost because you don't have a shepherd. But I, in John, he says again, I am the good shepherd. Why? I'm the good shepherd that leads you and lets you lay down in green pastures and I leads you along quiet waters and I restore your soul and I guide you along right paths for my name's sake. I mean, Jesus is like, I am the good shepherd. So when you glance at the story and just say, oh, there's a few people sitting down in some green grass, we miss the whole point of what Mark is trying to tell us here. Not only is he the bread of life, but he's the good shepherd. And that means you can trust him. That means you can trust him. So when you're like, God, I, I don't want to give up this job. It's the one I've waited for my whole life. How could you possibly ask me for this? He's like, I'm the good shepherd. I know where the green grass is. I know how to lead you. I know how to love you. But you can't possibly ask me to let go of this relationship because I haven't had one for so long. And it's maybe not perfect, but it's going to change because I'm going to do this and I'm going to do... Jesus is like, you can trust me because I'm the good shepherd and I'll sustain you. But what about my plan B? I mean, I, I need my plans. I need, I need to keep building. Like I live in San Francisco and in this kind of city, you've got to build and create and always know what you're going and what you're doing. And, and church, I want to say that if we're going to be the church that lives out the kingdom of God, we're going to be a lot more like we don't know what we're doing. Okay? During pre-service prayer, someone prayed out. Sometimes we're too smart for our own good. And it gets in the way of trusting God. Jesus tends to mess with our plans and ask us to give them to him and we can trust him because he's the good shepherd. It is not a coincidence that this passage of scripture follows that weird passage of scripture that Melissa taught last week about Herod's party and the beheading of John the Baptist. I know it felt, that felt like a, well, that's weird that they just plop that in there to tell us something about John the Baptist. No. Mark is way smarter than that and way more intentional than that. What he's doing is contrasting the feast of Herod with the feast of Jesus. What he's doing, he's saying, hey, you want to build your own kingdom? You want to do it in your own strength? You want to do it your way? You want to indulge in this kind of living? This is the end result of that. But you want to feast on Jesus? You want to say, okay, not what I can do, but what he can do. Then this is what you're going to experience. You're going to experience him leading you into green pastures and by quiet waters. And you're going to be sustained by the bread of life. He's laying before us a choice. You want Herod's feast? Or do you want to feast on Jesus? I know some of you are here and you're just like, oh, you don't know what I'm facing right now. Like if I take my hands off of this, it's going to implode. If I walk away from this, if I say yes to Jesus, you don't know how dark it's going to get here. But here's the other thing about Psalm 23. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because he's with us. And you know where he actually goes to set up the feast? 
in the presence of our enemies. I mean, it literally says in Psalm 23, he lays a table for us right in the middle of that thing that feels like it's spiraling out of control. Right in the middle of your marriage where you feel like I don't know how to save this thing and we just aren't communicating and we're missing each other and the whole thing's falling apart and beginning to imagine my life like us separated or us not working out or this anger continue. Right in that place, Jesus wants to come and allow you to feast on him. Right in that job situation that is just grinding on you because your boss is, is asking too much. You're like, I just feel so overwhelmed. I'm so exhausted. I don't know what to do. Jesus wants to come and set a feast that we could feast on him. But church, in order to experience that, we have to surrender. I know it feels so uncomfortable. Like, I have my plans, just like the disciples had their plans. I mean, they had worked out, this is how long we have to work for this much money so we can do this thing. It doesn't sound very different from, this is how many years I should be at this job to save this much money to get my security. I mean, you fill in the blanks. But at some point, if we want to walk in the kingdom of God, we're going to have to shift from, what can I do to what can he do? So what does he want to do in your life? I mean, what can he do with your situation? What's possible when we surrender? Because if you're like me, maybe you're tired. And maybe you're frustrated that you've had to like hustle and strive and work really, really hard for little. And you're like, God, there's got to be a better way than me just doing it in my own strength. And there is. There's this invitation to come. And church, there's like a kind of peace that we only get to experience in surrender. There's a kind of peace that comes on us that's so counterintuitive, like, oh my goodness, where did this peace come from? But that's what God has for us when we trust him with our lives, when we say, God, you are not going to fail me. I can give you my plan Bs. I can give you all of my workings out and all of my striving and all of the things I need to do. I can trust you with them. There's a joy that comes when we let go. A strange joy. And there's a kind of life that we get to lead only in this place of like full abandon to Jesus. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up as we kind of move into a response time. I have a sense this morning that the Holy Spirit is just moving on your hearts right now. Maybe there are some things that are right there. You're like, I have been clinging on to this thing. Maybe some of you know that you're literally living plan B. You know God spoke something and you have been resisting it because what if God fails? What if he doesn't come through for me? I'm just going to head down over here, do my thing, and then I'll move over to plan B in a few years. Maybe you've been clinging on. Maybe some of you have got some stuff in your life that you are trying to manage in your own strength. Maybe it's addiction that you have been wrestling with. We had a word given just during pre-service prayer about gambling addiction, that there was somebody here wrestling with that. And I had a sense when I shared it earlier, and I'll share it again now, that it's almost like sometimes with addictions in our life, we say, well, it's not out of control. I mean, I've got a lid on this. I'm not in debt. I've got some resources. I'm just having fun. But church, let me tell you, if there's anything in your life that you can't step away from, then it has a hold on you. 
I mean, if there's anything that you're like, I just can't stop thinking about this thing, I feel drawn towards this thing, like we need to check that with Jesus. See, God has more for you than just keeping a lid on stuff, holding it together, striving to be perfect. He's got freedom for us, but freedom, it comes from surrender. Joy and peace and all of those things that we want to experience, it comes from that shift of mindset away from what can I do to what can he do? If you're willing and able, I'm gonna invite you to stand. And let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come. Lord, I just feel you're so thick in this place today. I felt it during first service too, that Holy Spirit, you're doing deep work and I don't wanna rush what you're doing. I sense, Lord, that you are just pulling back some layers. There's some wrestling going on. There's some, there's some struggle happening for some of like, wait, my whole, my whole life is built around what can I do? My whole life has been about working hard and my plans and building things and just kind of having God on the side. And you're telling me that it's gonna be a whole flip? Yes. Because Jesus wants to be our everything. And it starts with just the small moments of saying, God, I think I might be done with plan B. I think, I think I might want to try something different than what can I do. I, I think I actually might want to step more into what can you do. You might be here today and you don't know Jesus. You're like, I just walked through these doors today. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. And Jesus is so glad that you are here. You know, some of us are resonate with that image of Herod's feast. It's like, I'm just trying to build my own thing and sustain my own thing. And some of us are just grabbing for scraps in life. And I sense what Jesus wants to say is, come feast on me. I mean, come see how good and sweet it is to lay down in green pastures and walk by the water and be led by a good shepherd who loves you and is for you. Because self-reliance and self-sufficiency is an empty promise. It's not gonna give us what we want. Holy Spirit, would you just come? If you wanna just lift your hands, you're welcome to, or just close your eyes, whatever you're comfortable with. Holy Spirit, would you just come and show us what are we clinging on to today? I mean, what are we protecting? What are we holding back? What is the plan that we've made that we're like, God, I'm not gonna give up this thing because my identity is in this thing and my security is in this thing. Would you just come speak, Holy Spirit? Lord, we wanna be a people of, what can he do? Lord, when we read this passage, we see you do miracles. We see you take something so small and so insignificant and do something miraculous. And something that's not just for the disciples, but it's for the people. God, that is what you're longing to do with the little thing that we have when we bring it to you and say, God, I surrender it, it's yours. God, you take that and you multiply it. And it's not just for us, but it's for the world. 
Church, we're going to move into some worship, and I really want to encourage you to not leave without asking Jesus, God, is there something for me to lay down? We have carpets at the front here, and I want to encourage you to almost imagine this kind of like an altar. There may be some things you need to come and just like figuratively leave in this space and just say, God, this is wearing me out. I want to I exchange it. I want to put down my what can I do? I want to pick up what can you do? There are some of you, I sense there's some of you here today, parents, and you, you're, you're struggling and you've been stuck in the mindset, what can I do? What books do I need to read? What podcasts do I need to listen to? How do I become a better parent? How do I figure this out? Everybody else seems to have it down and I'm struggling. And I just want to release over you the grace of it's not what you can do, it's what he can do. I want to just lift off of you in Jesus' name, just the heavy weight of feeling like you're failing, the shame of feeling like it's never enough. I want to encourage you to come kneel and respond to Jesus. We have prayer teams on either side. We'd love to pray for you. If the word about gambling was for you, we'd love to pray for you. No shame, zero shame. We want to just bless you and pray for freedom. There's communion. And let's just enter in once again and just say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do? How do we step into a deeper place of saying, God, what's possible? What is possible when we surrender our lives to you? Thank you, Jesus.